You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is entrepreneur, CEO, and the man who made Drew Brees look good at Purdue, Seth Morales. Seth, thank you so very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we, uh, you know, these podcasts here for the last several weeks have been recorded in the midst of the coronavirus drama. Uh, Morales Group, Tell us a little bit about your company, how you're doing professionally during all this, and how your family's doing. Everyone healthy? Everyone's healthy. Thankful. Nobody's um, contracted the virus and uh, extended family. We have had teammates at Morales Group with extended family that's um, come down with the virus and been on vents. And so it's, it's real, but uh, immediate family, we've been uh, clean and clear, and that's been great. It's been great being at home. Um, and at, you know, just to your earlier question at a high level, Morales group, um, is a full service recruiting and staffing firm specializing in the blue collar space. So anything in manufacturing or distribution, we have around 4,000 employees uh, weekly that work for us throughout state of Indiana, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Texas. And, um, it's been labor of love for me the last 15 years, helping um, people move packages around uh, that are frontline essential teammates right now that really matter to keeping America running and keeping uh, packages on your front door. So that's uh, what we do at a kind of a high level. I met Seth through a former podcast guest named Dave Neff, who used to be the CEO at Edge Mentoring. And it's I didn't have any uh, frame of reference for Seth, quite frankly. And once I let people know that I had met him or that he was coming on the podcast, the exclamations of admiration flowed quickly and consistently. That's a testament to you and to your family and to your business. How important is it to you, not only as a citizen of Indianapolis and Indiana, and by citizen, I mean that in the Roman sense, and also as a businessman, to have that sort of reputation, that reaction where people go, man, Seth's great. That's a really good question. I, I think about relationships, and I think about relationships are greater than outcomes. And at the end of the day, I think your, your life's work is, is not necessarily what you built, but who you impacted. And so for me, um, having a, a legacy of sustainability, long-term relationships, and really valuing how I impact others, that's important. So we, we, we at Morales Group, myself, I always talk about people is greater than profit. And uh, I think you can balance that and figure out a way to make a profit and also uh, respect and lift people up. And um, I think when you kind of keep that sentiment throughout, you know, your course of life, you know, good things happen and people actually show up to your funeral when everything's uh, set <laughs> down. Uh, How, for me, who doesn't, I don't know anything about the staffing business. I have some friends uh, who are in it, 
or used to be in it. I'm thinking of the wonderful and beautiful and amazing Gina Surf, who I oh, met yeah. several, a couple of decades ago now. Um, how competitive is it? And since I'm going to assume it's ultra competitive, what's the Morales edge, the Morales difference? Yeah, it's highly competitive. I call it a saturated market. There's 220 agencies here in the Indianapolis metro alone. So it's um, it's kind of a dog-eat-dog world. I think what sets us apart, I think our differentiator, there's two things. One is I think I kind of the way we've built the culture from ground up and really focused on our people first. I think truly being, um, you know, I think a company that's focused on more of a purpose and less on, um, a product or service. I think a lot of people have gotten behind, you know, this, this idea of building a better future one story at a time with the workforce that we support. I think the other thing that's been really interesting that we've kind of hung our hat on is been able to kind of just tap into the, the roots of just a, a diverse and globally diverse workforce, um, and really accentuate that and lift that, that group up. And so, um, everyone kind of needs a platform to be heard and, there are those that are, in my opinion, sometimes um, deemed non-essential or marginalized. And we feel like it's you know, our job to be a good steward of lifting folks up and um, you know, being a voice for them and trying to be an advocate in the uh, employment space. So I think diversity and also our culture is a big part of how we differentiate on the front lines. In, a, in an ironic sort of way, given... Um the description you just gave us about your company, were you uniquely prepared for what we've been experiencing uh, due to the pandemic or somehow were you not prepared? It seems like the former based on what you said. Yeah, I'd, I'd say we were prepared. And I think the fabric of, of our team is, is tightly woven and you've, you have core values that are, you know, I think well understood and, and lived out daily working from home and shifting from this, you know, this virus and, and trying to be nimble and creative and innovative. Our team's really stepped up and I think has done a great job of thinking outside the box. And I think really kind of hanging their hat on this entrepreneurial spirit where um, we're just trying to build a better future through providing people employment. So it's been really neat to see our team step up innovate. So I think we were prepared. I think from a technology standpoint, we were behind. But I think um, if you were to describe Morales Group as an athlete on the field, <laughs> I, I would describe them as kind of this raw, uh, unpolished, um, a lot of grit, a lot of humility, a lot of heart, and a lot of effort. And so as we grow up as a business, as we grow up as an athlete, we're learning technology needs to be a big part of who we are. So we have this core foundation that's really solid. It's healthy and our team is very engaged. People are leaning in versus I'm just satisfied and I'm leaning back mm -hmm. in the game. So I think we've, we've had a, a pretty good pivot, you know, despite this crisis, it's been a real challenge, but we've stepped up. How would you describe I've seen this. I live downtown. I've seen this a little bit, obviously, as, as, as people who know me will tell you, I'm, I'm just one step below Howard Hughes on the hermit scale. So the stay at home and quarantining hasn't really affected me that much, but it has affected a, a different group of people who are more outgoing, more extroverted. In your experience, not only with your workers, but the other people you've talked to, I really give Hoosiers high marks for how they've handled it. Is that your experience as well? It is. I think this has been a challenge for those, like you said, who are socially a little bit more um, engaged on the front lines. We've had a number of teammates that have kind of relished in this moment. You know, we, we have not gone back to work yet. Um, our, our timing is July 1st. So we've, we've held out a little bit, maybe longer than some employers have. There are those who, um, who are chomping at the bit to get back into the office. And we understand that too. I think 
the biggest kind of takeaway from this has been the mental aspect. Th those that um, need some sort of activity and interaction, you know, with, with somebody flesh to flesh. And then there's those that are quite, you know, happy as a clam um, doing their work from, from home. And so as a leader, it's been an interesting balance trying to figure out, should we go back to appease those that need to be around people? Cause we have such a familial, healthy culture, mm -hmm. we hold back and uh, support those. And so it's just, I think it's a little bit of a dance. I think being a leader and listening in and trying to understand what the overall vibe is. I think the core of all this is just, let's be safe. Let's let it run its course. Um, we'll take a little bit more of a precautionary, you know, step. So that's, that's been our approach, but it's not perfect. I, we haven't figured it out just yet. Well, if you could figure it out, that'd be helpful to the rest of us. If you could right. just, if you could bottle it and sell it like a hand sanitizer for lack of a better term, uh, we'd welcome it. For sure. For sure. We would welcome it too. <laughs> it's been fun talking to other leaders, just trying to figure out, you know, their strategy and you're right. Nobody has figured it out. And I sit on the board of St. Vincent's health system and I'm on these weekly calls and, you know, I've got some front, front hand, you know, information and still don't have it figured out. So it's a, it's a work in progress. Well, let's, let's jump forward a little bit in the chronology because I'm going to tie some kind of all these little thoughts together. Seth went to Purdue, as I mentioned earlier, through his connection um, as on the football field with Drew Brees, which we'll get to in a minute. But when you look at your time as a student, your experience as a leader, and you look at what Mitch Daniels is trying to accomplish up at Purdue, which is the most salient example, not only for Seth, because he went there, but also be, for me, because my son is in the aviation school at Purdue. And now he is not flying. He's back home living under his mother's rules. So that's thrilling. Could you even have imagined being at Purdue during this time, A, could you have imagined playing football games in Ross-Aid with no fans, as is being uh, proposed? And finally, uh, what do you think about what uh, President Daniels, a former podcast guest, is trying to accomplish there? Get to the Daniels comment at the end. I, I love what he's doing, but um, to answer the first part of your question, what would life be like if I was on campus at this time? I can't imagine. I, I do have a firsthand look through another student's eyes. We uh, are working with an intern from Purdue right now, and he's a part of the men's football team. Um, he is uh, an All-American wide receiver. His name's Rondell Moore, phenomenal student, 3.9 yeah. GPA. And we're talking weekly on a Zoom call just to kind of huddle up and you know, the uncertainty is it's, it's a challenge. I think working out at home and not being able to be with the team, not being able to be on the field with your quarterback, not being in, be in the weight room or the film room. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. Uh, and I think it mentally kind of can mess with you. I recall when I played nine 11 occurred during the season and we were playing Notre Dame that week. And that game oh, got yeah. pushed. It got pushed to the end of the season. And 9-11 was such a monumental moment in our history, and it had such a big impact. I remember in my apartment watching the Twin Towers collapse and thinking about, oh, crap, like, what is this going to do with practice and how is this going to impact life? But this virus has had so much more of an impact on school and life than what 9-11 did. Um, and so just from a college standpoint, at least as a student, I think it's had much more of an impact. So. I can't imagine what it'd be like. I think that'd be really challenging. I think with Mitch Daniels, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan myself. I think what he's trying to do with, you know, not, no nonsense, like let's we'll come up with a plan in the fall. We'll maybe shorten the school semester, you know, by Thanksgiving, you know, he's leading the charge. Uh, I think school and universities will be disrupted with this, but I think, he's already kind of seen that and has made a lot of the, the right core foundational moves to make sure that I think Purdue sustains into the future and also as kind of a front runner. So I don't know if you saw his speech, his um, um, 
graduation speech to, you know, obviously he didn't do it in front of anybody and just did it on video and um, just a phenomenal speech about, you know, take your phone off, like get off your screen, stop, stop reading the news and pick up the phone and call somebody that you love, call an old friend, but drop in. Don't just kind of tune out onto your screen. He just talked about how this whole like isolation of um, folks that, you know, or, or, or younger in this generation, they, they kind of, you know, have that kind of clustering of finding people that are like-minded and being on that device. And so I thought he had some really good points. So he's definitely, in my opinion, I think doing the right things to, to lead the charge, but it's going to be a, uh, interesting to see what happens to higher ed. I tried to find this information out before we started the podcast and I wasn't uh, able to, and it's, it's, something I wanted to bring up because so many of the people we've interviewed are Hoosiers born and bred and they leave They leave here, not because they want to. Sometimes they leave there because we have to, and whether it's serving in the military or opportunities, uh, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? And what made you decide to go to Purdue? I was born and raised in Indianapolis. So I'm a local product. I went to public high school, Lawrence Central High School. Grew up out in the Geist area. And as I was wrapping up my senior year at Lawrence Central, I had a lot of uh, smaller Division II, Division III college offers. And I got accepted into Cornell. And I thought I was going to Cornell University to play football in the Ivy League system. And um, my dad kind of broke it to me. Um, <laughs> wasn't necessarily going to foot the bill for, uh, the entire amount. And, uh, I didn't have much in scholarship money to Cornell. And so the, uh, option B was to stay local and go to Butler. And, um, I didn't have any division one offers and I didn't have any division one walk-on offers. So kind of, um, you know, small white kid, five foot nine, 150 pounds, probably wasn't going to get a lot of looks. We ran the football all the time in, in high school. So I went to Butler and um, played football there. I was fortunate to become a, a starter as a freshman and lead the team in receiving and touchdowns and enjoyed that time there. Felt a little bit like prep school for me. Um, Butler is known for basketball, not necessarily football, although their program's gotten a lot better. Um, no knock to the Butler Bulldog football program. Love those guys. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I had um, a little brother who was playing uh, CYO football here locally, and he had a coach who played at Purdue in the 80s. And um, my dad asked him if he could help me maybe share some film to uh, some of the different programs that he was affiliated with, especially with Purdue because he was a former player there. And uh, this guy's name is Pete Quinn, and he took uh, my information and gave it to coaching staff. And it basically kind of opened up the door at a, at a small crack, and uh, I got a chance to walk on up there as an invite. And, um, you know, fast forward, it, it ended up working out. But I was pretty fortunate to have, you know, a local connection. This guy went to Cicina, and then he played at Purdue. And he didn't know me from Adam, but he knew my little brother and some film help that I was – doing some good things at Butler. So I got the nod that way. Butler probably didn't have that many more students in your high school. No, <laughs> very similar, very similar. I think uh, Butler at the time maybe had a thousand in, in our, uh, in our freshman class. So Lawrence central was uh, pretty close in size for sure. But Purdue is one of the premier universities in the country for sure. Rich, very rich football history for sure as well. Did you feel just pretty darn lucky? And then do you remember the first time you walked into the locker room or the training facility or the field and some guy stuck his hand out and said, Hey Seth, I'm Drew Brees. It was, um, it was pretty special meeting, meeting Drew. And I think, um, when I look back at that time, I remember, um, prior to meeting Drew, I, I, I went into, coach's office at Butler and told him that I was transferring. And uh, the coach told me, you'll never see the field, even your senior year, you might be lucky to do some cleanup um, towards the end of the season. And so that was very motivating. 
So I remember walking on, I remember coming up with my first practice up at Purdue. It was in the summer. It was ahead of the fall season. And the guys were playing seven on seven in the big stadium in Ross Aid. And Drew was our quarterback. And about 10 minutes into playing, I had a, a pass from him kind of down the middle, 30-yard kind of seam route. And I caught it, diving catch, um, laid out, just showed that I had a willingness to sacrifice my body and also catch the ball. But I remember there were some coaches in the stands. They couldn't be down on the field, but they were up in the stands watching the players play. And I think that was that signifying moment to me that, you know, I could, I could compete. And what was neat about Drew is, you know, he, he was, you know, indifferent. He didn't care if you were a, you know, invited walk on or you were a four or five star, you know, you know, recruit. He was, he was going to treat you all the same and um, speak truth, call you out, also encourage you. And so, I really appreciated somebody like that, you know, who kind of was a little bit of an underdog himself. You know, he went to um, uh, high school in Texas, tore his ACL, was not highly recruited. I think he had an offer at University of Kentucky and Purdue, and that was really it. I think Texas schools kind of passed on him because of his knee injury. So he was a guy that I think has that kind of bulldog, unsung hero. I'm going to do what it takes to – uh, kind of get that chip off your shoulder and, and, and prove everyone else that you can do it. So pretty, pretty special moment for me as I was coming into the program, knowing that I had a quarterback that got um, what it meant to kind of step up and be gritty. What's the, is you, were you guys in the same class? He was, he was two classes ahead of me. So he was a senior when I was a sophomore, when he, when he moved on. So I got to play with him for two seasons. So I kind of missed him a little bit because uh, he was uh, a little bit older in, in age, but um, it was a great opportunity being with him for those few years. You read about quarterbacks uh, in, in college or pros and how they they throw the ball in a way that's not anticipated. So the first time that you caught passes – from Drew Brees, were you thinking to yourself, man, I've never had anyone throw me the ball this way before? Yeah, I definitely got that from from Drew. You know, there were other quarterbacks around Drew that had a bigger arm and and a faster arm, but he was uh, extremely accurate. And he could put the ball in a place that that most other quarterbacks I haven't seen um, do. And um, what was really neat about being on the field and being in that system, the Purdue system, it was a basketball on grass. We were throwing the ball 60, 70 times a game. He just, he continued to be accurate with a lot of his throws. And so a guy that like myself, a walk on, um, I was typically a third or fourth option in a lot of the offensive systems. I could still catch 40 balls a season. It was because he was so accurate and he could read through his progressions. He was that talented at, kind of working through the system. And he was so accurate that you were going to get uh, a lot of opportunities if you ran the right route. So I, I tell people a lot of times, right place, right time, right system, right quarterback. Um, <laughs> if you could catch the ball and you had a little bit of juice on you on the field, then you were going to make some moves and make some plays. And he seems to be, you know, my, my, pro team the Miami Dolphins had a chance to sign him about 14 or 15 years ago didn't because of his you know supposedly degenerate debilitating shoulder that wasn't going to be able to hold up that was about 450 touchdown passes ago but you read about him a little bit and it seems and, and this also seems to be something you share Drew Brees's commitment to New Orleans and and its people is inspiring and astounding. And when you stay in touch with him or you read about what he's doing down there uh, in the paper, is that the Drew Brees you remember? And do you think to yourself, you know what, I'm going to do some of that stuff here in Indiana? Yeah, I think he set the he set the gold standard for us at Purdue and it obviously carried forward with his work down in New Orleans. And it had an impact on me here locally too. I think 
what you see is advertised with Drew. I don't think you'll find somebody who works um, as hard or harder than Drew Brees. You know, I, I tell people all the time, I remember being on campus and leaving film. And I, I was an I was a undersized walk-on that had a lot of effort and started three years. And I felt like I put in a lot of time on the film room or in the weight room. And I'd be walking in or walking out to finish up my night. And Drew would be walking in with a tape, hands full of tapes, videotapes to watch, you know, film for another two or three hours. So he was so talented on the bookends of the day. He would wake up early, put in the effort. He would finish up at night after everyone, you know, had left the building. And so that carried on consistently throughout his pro career. So think about probably some of the greatest quarterbacks of our era. I think about Tom Brady and Drew Brees and those guys just while, you know, naturally gifted, very accurate passers, they probably outwork every single other quarterback that, that's coming to the league because of their work ethic. And so that's been special to see consistent year over year with, with what he's done. And then just to see his body of work as a dad, as a leader, you know, just what he's done for the city. I tell people all the time, I think Drew could run for office. I think Drew could be a, a CEO of a publicly traded company. I think he could obviously sign this contract with NBC to lifelong to, to do commentating. He just has that ability to lead in a, a much, I don't know, just it's, it's, it's an uncanny way. And so, um, you know, it's definitely had an impact on how I roll here in Indy and what I do with, with our business and how I want to be portrayed as, as I go forward. A lot of times you hear that in moving beyond just Drew Brees, but the entire scope of every sport that athletes, particularly high profile athletes, have an obligation to be involved socially or in the community. Do you believe that's true? And do you believe the same test or expectation applies to CEOs of companies like yours and larger ones? Yeah, I, I do believe that's true. I think high profile athletes or athletes in general or CEOs of publicly traded companies or privately held companies, they have a platform and they have an audience. And I think if you use that platform the right way, think about Tony Dungy and what he did for the city of Indianapolis or somebody like Drew Brees as a player. Think about Mitch Daniels. Uh, just these leaders have such a voice and an opportunity to make a positive impact and get kind of their message across. Um, I, th I think it's, it's, I think it's vital. For me, I saw this opportunity of being promoted to president and CEO as a, a way to broadcast our brand, but also to be a good steward of the opportunity that you have. And so I have a platform. There's many people that I think listen in, whether it's on LinkedIn or in our, you know, four, four walls inside our office space. So it's like to whom much is given, much is expected. And so uh, as an athlete or a leader of a company, I think you are expected to step up and, and do the right things and be involved community wise and, and have a voice and have an opinion and not just kind of sit, sit on the sidelines and maybe collect a check and be selfish about it. Well, there's probably no better example in, in modern Indianapolis sports history than the one set by Peyton Manning. Uh, and he learned a lot of what, and he has said this before, a lot of the, the sort of the quote unquote tutorial he received about being involved in the community and giving back, he got from Dan Marino, who was his favorite quarterback growing up. And you see that Dan Marino fam famously started a hospital, started a center on autism down in Miami because his son had it. Then you see Peyton Manning's hospital up here. The one criticism that's come through about Michael Jordan in the Last Dance documentary uh, is that he wasn't that sort of civil rights activist, community 
uh, leader and speaker of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar called him out about it, especially. Do you think that's a fair criticism? In other words, if, if a CEO just wants to give quietly or an athlete just wants to give quietly, they don't necessarily have an obligation to be public about their involvement or their gifts. I think that's a really good question. And it's, it can be argued, I think, both ways. So I think, you know, comes down to kind of an opinion. From my standpoint, my opinion would be, I think you have a platform, you know, Jordan transcended the sport with just his ability to play the game. And he did have a good guy image, but I do think when you look at somebody like LeBron James and what he advocates for or what Al Dujabar does, or you look at somebody like Drew Brees that stands for his faith. Um, mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, I think that matters more than, um, you know, how many points you scored or who had the most MVPs or who's the goat, you know, the discussion, like, at the end of the day, I think your legacy and your impact is more so about uh, standing up for what you believe in and, and having a voice. But, you know, I think there's there's a good argument to the other side. You know, I think there's people that can you know, take a step back and be under the radar and understated and do their thing and, you know, have a have a good career, too. But I just think you're given much. You have a platform. I think you should step up and share about it. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today for the Leaders and Legends podcast is Seth Morales, CEO of the Morales Group, Big Ten athlete, and quite frankly, one of the most complimented people I have ever met. It's amazing the the brain and the reputation you have among your peers, and you're to be congratulated for that, uh, for sure. Is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire? And I have to think about that one. The easy one that comes to my mind, I just, I look at up here on my shelf in my office, I'm looking at Mitch Daniels. Uh, I think that's a kind of a no brainer for somebody that grew up, you know, I went to high school with his daughter. I've seen what he's, you know, did for political system and government and also for Lily and, Purdue University in the state of Indiana. I think there's there's a lot of um, leaders that come to my mind. I also think about some of those unsung, under-the-radar leaders. I think about my high school coach at Lawrence Central High School, Coach Randall. He, uh, he went to Short Ridge High School, won a uh, high school state basketball championship. But um, I think his, his biggest impact was just the way he impacted the students at Lawrence Central and created lifelong lasting relationships. And I think about when he died of, of cancer and going to his funeral and seeing how many people lined up to celebrate his life. So um, I, you know, there's a number of Hoosiers that I think have stepped up and I'm a, I do like history and I should be rattling this stuff off. <laughs> I should lean on you, Robert, to do a little bit more of that for me, but. Um, I just had to do a, a quick media interview about governor Holcomb and uh, his his performance, for lack of a better term, during the pandemic, and um, I, I I immediately mentioned uh, the Civil War and Oliver P. Morton, okay, whose leadership was phenomenal for that time period. He actually he was elected to be Senate, to be a senator back when you had um, did not have direct election of senators. I think that's the Seventeenth Amendment. Correct me, Spangle, but. Then he switched. He wanted to be governor. And he, the Indiana, we were so fortunate to have him leading us at that time. Much like, quite frankly, we were so fortunate to have Mitch Daniels leading us when he did because Indiana needed the sort of jolt that he gave us 
and anyone who argues against that is, I think, is, is so partisan that you just kind of got to have to say, OK, but I know a lot of Democrats who voted for Joe Kernan in 2004 and then voted for Mitch Daniels in 2008. Another name that's come up, quite frankly, probably the most popular name has been Richard Luger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about his his work with the city and what he built, you know, what 60s and 70s and how he kind of modernized and created what Indianapolis looks like today with guys like Jim Morris and kind of laid the blueprint for others like Daniels to follow and other leaders. Um, you would have more insight on that, but yeah, <laughs> a guy like that, um, those, those, those two definitely stick out as, um, you know, leaders that did things the right way in a civil manner, um, less partisan about just the way they handled their politics and really kind of practical and kind of Hoosier, man, just really hospitable, approachable. I've had a number of conversations with Mitch and we often talk about uh, my time playing Purdue football and talk about one of the more just approachable guys that want to talk, you know, the sport and the game. It's just fun being able to engage uh, with somebody like that or like Luger. Didn't have a chance to meet Luger, but I'm sure you've got some stories and anecdotes that uh, affirm that. Well, we did a whole podcast on the career of Richard Luger, and it was with Jim Shella and Gail Lowry and and uh, Jim Morris, who you just mentioned. It was terrific. Um, I was born six weeks after Luger won mayor for the first time. So my entire life is basically, other than the three years I spent in the Army, my entire life is basically Dick Luger and, and Bill Hudnut and Steve Goldsmith and, and Bart Peterson, Greg Ballard, and now Joe Hogshead. I mean, the, the impact that they've left on us and you'd have to talk to a, a P.E. McAllister uh, to understand what Indianapolis was before Luger and what it is now and you know I've asked several uh, guests whether it's David Frick or, or Mark Miles or John Mutz, Louis Mayhern, the list goes on and on that you know in 1976, if I would have told you that in 35 years, Indianapolis would not only host a Super Bowl, but completely redefine what it meant to host a Super Bowl, what would you have told me? And they all would have just assumed I was a meth head, that I was clueless. Like, what are you talking about? Super Bowl? We don't even have a team. We don't have a stadium. We don't have this or that. Yeah. And it's and I wanted, I had this question written down. I want to ask you about it now. To me, there's nothing so undervalued or unappreciated when it comes to success as, as personal leadership. That the difference a person can make, a man or woman, in ensuring success or failure, to me, is unparalleled. You can go all the way back to George Washington. You can go back to Henry V, whomever you want. But in your career... In your life, who are the leaders who have made a difference? Athletes are coached, so they meet a different group of people than folks like me who didn't play sports. Plus, I want to specifically ask you while you're answering that, think of how much your father has influenced who you are. All really good questions. I'll get to uh, the father part at the end. With who's made a difference or what individual has I seen as a leader that really made all the difference for an organization or a team? Well, like think about, you know, if you have a decision to make or you have factors to consider, do you go back and go, you know, I remember coach Tiller one time. I definitely remember coach Tiller one time. <laughs> he, he's hard not to think about um, what, what coach which Coach Tiller did at Purdue University was nothing but remarkable. You think about the system or the program that he inherited. He had a crappy facility. He had no recruiting program. He had Michigan and Ohio State and Wisconsin to compete against Penn State. And he took this you know, team that had not been in a bowl game in maybe 15 years. You can correct me on that if you want. Maybe I'm off, maybe a few years, but – you're close yeah. either way, for sure. Yeah, I mean, no, just a, a terrible just run. 
he inherited Coletto's team and he, he came in and innovated the way the big 10 played the game. The big 10 was very physical and uh, it was run oriented. It was kind of this traditional pro style of offense. And he came in and it was basketball on grass. They were throwing the ball 60 or 70 times a, a game. And he really opened up the way uh, the game was played for the big 10. And he brought in a, a remarkable quarterback and breeze who fit into the system. But what, what Tiller did was really, really interesting about a leader. He, he wasn't afraid to not be liked. It was not, it was not about politics to him. He was a straight shooter and he was going to do it his way. And you were either going to get on the bus or you weren't. And I remember he came in <laughs> early on and there's this story about how he came in to the fall camp his first year and he called out this one kid and, um, he told the kid to pack up his stuff and leave. He was caught, you know, drinking. He had some, some bottles in his room and um, he just set the tone right off the bat. He did not care who you were, whether you're a four-star starter or you were somebody that was a walk-on, he true, he treated everyone the same. And so I think about somebody who came in and really cleaned up a program, took it from bottom of, of the big 10 to, you know, maybe at least seven or eight years of competing for the Big Ten Championship. One year we won the Big Ten Championship. Somebody who wasn't afraid to say, you know what, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm making this decision and not being afraid of not being uh, the most popular guy. I think about the same thing with Drew Brees. Drew Brees was not afraid to call you out in the huddle, even if you were the star receiver. He would call you on your (laughs) He was not afraid (laughs) to pull you aside and pull you by the face mask and say, Hey man, get, get, get yourself in, in chat. Did you, one of the more miraculous gets for the leaders and legends podcast was uh, coach Gene Katie, mm. who I literally ran into at the Cityway YMCA and blurted out, may I shake your hand, even though you caused my heart to break more times than I could count. And he came back and said, you broke our heart too. And I'm like, I played chess. I didn't really break your heart, but I get where you're coming from. He came on the podcast. He was so generous and so fun. It's really a miracle. and, And I can't wait. He goes, he wants to have lunch and I simply can't wait to do it. But it seemed that Tiller and Katie were cut from the same cloth and standing next to each other, did you ever think, I'm looking at the two old dudes from the Muppets? That's good. <laughs> very, very similar. No nonsense. Old school. They were, they were coached and, and built up by a, an era of, you know, I think, a generation that just, you know, it was, um, I don't want to call it authoritarian, but you were definitely going to listen to. Disciplinarian. Disciplinarian is a, a better word. Yeah, that's good. I, I remember seeing Coach Tiller um, a couple months before he passed. I got a chance to go out to his uh, – he had a, a ranch in Wyoming, and I got a chance to kind of tie some loose ends up with him because I didn't finish my career on the highest note. And I remember, you know, I didn't necessarily get um, this long, drawn-out conversation where we buttoned things up together, but he did tell me he loved me, and you could tell that he had this soft side to him. And it came, I think, later on in life. But, you know, Joe was Joe was a disciplinarian, and he played the mental game well, and he was not afraid to, to call it how he saw it. And I think while I am not cut from that same cloth, it definitely gives you, I think, as a leader, some insight as to, you know, you're going to have to make decisions. You're going to have to fire somebody that's not mm-hmm. getting the job done. And if you can think about, you know, you're going to make unpopular decisions and that's okay. It's what's for the greater good of the team or the company and be okay with that. Um, And so he helped me kind of put my sights on if we're going to make this decision, we're going higher and onward and, and forward. And so he, he helped with that. So great example of of leadership for sure. A few minutes ago, I asked you about the, specifically we were talking about coaches and leaders and as an athlete you meet so many people who are trying to teach you the right way to do things position coaches head coaches the list goes on and on professors in college Uh, but before we move on because I want to specifically ask you about uh, 
the Rose Bowl. Please talk a little bit about your dad, your parents, how they shaped you, how they made you the person you are and put you on the path for what clearly has been a successful career. So I've, I've been pretty fortunate. I have, I have two parents that have been married for 45 plus years and uh, they were high school sweethearts at Lawrence Central High School and they both graduated from Purdue University. And I've got a, I've got a unique blend of both of them. I'm not more so like one or the other. And they both have some wonderful traits or skills. And, you know, my dad is highly relational. He's a big teddy bear and he's very genuine with the way he gives. He's a very generous guy. He today is worth um, a decent amount of money, um, but you wouldn't tell. He still lives in the house that I grew up in, and he loves to give his money away to civic, um, faith-based causes. He's just he's he's very uh, focused on uh, being philanthropic, and that's been really cool to see and how he's lived that out with with our business. He started our business at the age of fifty, and he didn't necessarily have a ton of foundation or net worth to start the business. He had five kids and um, he kind of took a step of faith and uh, it turned out to, to work out really well for him. But I learned a lot from him from a relational standpoint, from his generosity. And um, I think he's just been such a, a, a huge impact on this business. So he's been fun to watch. And then my mom has just been, she's been kind of the um, unsung hero that, sits back in the shadows and um, is quietly listening to one another. You know, if, if somebody's got a challenge, she's lifting us up in prayer, family of faith. And so she's kind of our rock that way, but she's super humble and she's very um, just giving of just kind of, it's not about her. It's about the family and, and what's best for the family. And so Having those two examples, um, having that consistency in, in life and growing up has been really uh, helpful for me. If I have my chronology correct, it was either the year after you left Butler or two years after you left Butler to go to Purdue, you traded in the Butler Bowl for the Rose Bowl. You walk out onto that field, which is the home field of, of UCLA, but you walk out on that field, which I'm assuming the game was New Year's Day or pretty darn close to it. I think it was the, was the BCS era. Had that started by then? Or I can't remember. But it had. Yeah. So and you, not that you hadn't played in front of big crowds, because I'm assuming that you went to the big house or, or Ohio Stadium at least once. Yep. But did, when you're walking out on the field, do you just – go, this, this can't be serious. Like, is this some sort of Will Ferrell movie that I've walked into or damn it, I've worked my tail off, made the most, caught a few breaks, literally probably. And here I am and I'm going to play my tail off and hope for the best, but walking out onto that field, national television, it just must've been awe inspiring. What was that like? The Rose Bowl is something special. It was surreal walking out onto that field. New Year's Day, you're the only game on at 4.30 to start. And um, you just, you, you've got the mountains in the backdrop and you've got kind of the pageantry or the history of the Rose Bowl. You've got Keith Jackson announcing. And the field at the Rose Bowl is cut uh, – at a level that it feels like you're on a putting green and the track's fast and you feel, and for me, it was an overwhelming sense of, Oh my gosh, I, I don't think I was ever more nervous in a game than, than the Rose bowl. There were definitely, definitely uh, jitters for me. Um, I think I didn't end up having a phenomenal game. I think I had a few catches that game and uh, didn't score any touchdowns, but I played, you know, all the snaps and didn't get injured, but, it was uh, it was very uh, daunting to start. It's probably, I think, in my opinion, when the sun sets and the mountains are in the background, it's the only game at that time on New Year's Day in the history of that bowl. 
I, I don't think I don't think you get anything better than that. Um, now you can, you could argue the national championship game, maybe two undefeated teams. You've got Alabama or Ohio State going head to head, but you know, for me, that was a really special moment. And um, I think about it, and I can remember moments um, throughout that game. I remember some of the trash talk. I remember some of the warm up. <laughs> You know, I remember late in the game, I remember what it felt like, you know, as we kind of ended the game and going to the locker room and um, afterwards what we did. So uh, very special moment indeed. And, uh, you know, there's only so many people that get a chance to step out onto that field and actually play and start. And uh, especially for Purdue, you know, a program that hadn't been in the Rose Bowl in 30 plus years, that was um, that was pretty special. It was their first appearance since Bob Greasy won the Rose Bowl. Yep. UCLA, USC. I forget which team he beat. USC. USC. Yep. And and did USC have OJ at the time? Uh, it was I, like sixty seven or sixty six, sixty eight. They may have or OJ may have graduated, and um, Purdue had Greasy and Keys, Leroy Keys, and I think they won in sixty eight. Maybe OJ graduated sixty-seven. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe OJ was on the field because sixty-sevens were when USC beat IU. But you know, people don't not to not to be a as my friend April Gregory would say a reversible jacket, and that's those of us who root for Notre Dame and football and IU and basketball. Oh yeah, she says it with much derision. It's it's so judgmental, so judgmental. But to give Purdue its credit. They did very well against the Notre Dame teams of Era Parsegian. And I think Purdue and Alabama are the only schools that have each produced three Super Bowl winning quarterbacks. That's right. Pretty special to Namath, Stabler, and Stabler. You're talking about Alabama. Uh, and Bar- Bart Starr. Star. Bart Starr, uh, Namath, and Stabler. And Purdue has Lynn Dawson, Bob Greasy, and Drew Brees. That's right. But after college, and when you and I met, uh, when I came to your office and talked to you for a few minutes, when I found out that you, after Purdue, committed the apostasy of enrolling at the University of Notre Dame for your MBA, I guess that's not as bad as going to IU Bloomington to get your law degree, but it's pretty darn close. Oh, man. Not not a popular decision. <laughs> My, uh, <laughs> with your parents, with your friends, with your teammates, on and on. Yeah, what, there weren't too many people happy about that. It, you know, I think two things happened. One, um, I had a really, really crappy senior year game up at Notre Dame. And it was late in the fourth quarter. We were down by a touchdown, and we were driving. It was two-minute offense, and I was running um, kind of a crossing route. And Kyle Orton was our quarterback at the time. Breeze had graduated, and he threw me this pass, and I dropped it. Went off my hand. Defensive back caught it, intercepted it, and he took it to the house, and they won. Um, That was kind of my defining moment for my senior year. So I left um, the game leaving something on the field at Notre Dame. So for me to go back there, it was kind of like my my opportunity to say, all right, I'm going to finish up what I didn't finish up here. um, whether it's not on the field anymore, I'm going to do it in the classroom. And I also had a wife who got into the program before me, and I'm competitive. And I wasn't going to let her get her MBA without <laughs> me getting my MBA. So I trailed right behind her. And uh, if you look at this picture right here. I know viewers can't see it, but you know, obviously this is a picture of my wife and I when we graduated from Notre Dame together. And we had our son, our first son, um, a month before he graduated. So it was a cool, cool time in my life. So, so did you attend Notre Dame football games as a graduate student? I did. I did just one game, just one game, just one and two or three, how would it take you two, three years to get your MBA Two. two. So, so you went to one game. Was that a Purdue game? No, it wasn't. Um, I went to the Stanford game. It was the year Notre Dame was actually decent. They went 11 or 12 and 0. They went to the national championship and then got smoked by Alabama. Was that the game during the ice storm, the horrible um, Stanford game? I went to the Stanford-Notre Dame game, and it was like 10 degrees in October with an ice storm. 
it was raining. Yeah. And it was, uh, they barely won that game. It was, uh, I forget. Where, do you wear a Notre Dame shirt? You can no. be honest with us. No, 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 no. I do have some Notre Dame gear, but no, I mean, it's all Purdue, man. It's all Purdue. It's all Purdue. So when Purdue and Notre Dame play, there's no ambiguity. Oh, um, that, that's stupid. No, it's all <laughs> I mean, the Notre Dame fans, they'll try to brainwash you, and there, there's a little bit of a cult up there. Um, yeah, it's called the Catholic Church. <laughs> there you go. There's some interesting uh, – I say that as a Catholic. Yeah, it's, we get it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting up there. But you know what? I respect the program. I, um, you know, when we played them, I, I went two and two. So we had a couple of wins against them and then um, we had a couple of losses. So uh, it was fun going back and forth with that Purdue-Notre Dame rivalry. But at the end of the day, hands down, it's, it's, it's all Purdue 100% in our household. Does it matter to you to stay an involved alumnus do you feel like my years at purdue and you could maybe throw in notre dame but let's stick with purdue of course based on what you just said that it's important for me to stay involved at my alma mater and it's important for me to stay involved maybe at lawrence central that those educational years are so critical to producing strong leaders in any field do you feel like, you know, if I go back and I speak to a business class at Purdue or I go back and I speak to my uh, to people who are seniors at Lawrence Central. How important is that to you? And do you believe that you can make an impact? It is an incredibly important to me. I think that is the game. I think the legacy and, and giving back and sharing and trying to pull people up and pull them in, into the knowledge that you've experienced. I speak to um, Purdue entrepreneurship programs um, throughout the year. I, I did a couple this year already um, in February before uh, the virus hit. And, um, you know, I've spoken to the men's football team at Purdue as well. Anytime I get a chance to do that, I am, um, I am all on board. I think, um, I wish I, I could have somebody come back and pull me aside and say, Hey, stop worrying about this and this and really focus on, on these things. And so I try to do that when I share and speak, but I think it's all about giving back and making time to, to speak to your alma mater. I think, you know, you, again, it's to, to whom much is giving much is expected. And, you know, I, there's not, if you're not going to do it, you know, there may not be another leader who's going to step up. And so I'll speak at, I'll speak at a, a small, like local high school, the men's basketball team. I don't care like that to me, that geeks me out. I think it fills my cup up because a, I know I'm trying to pour into these kids and try to add some value and B at some point they'll remember who you are. They'll remember some sort of relational connection and, you know, it'll come back around at some point and um, maybe you can help them out with finding employment or you can, uh, find a way to work together. And so that's, at the end of the day, that's what really matters. And I think as leaders, you know, finding folks that are um, young and innovative and having different networks and not just being in one cluster of an age segment, but going up and going down and going across, like being able to, you know, have different, you know, age groups where you can connect with that, that really matters. So that's important to me. As a CEO, as the person who is sitting in the office, sitting in boardrooms, making decisions, it's, it's all on you eventually. And you mentioned that earlier about how tough it is to make the final call and that you need to make the final call. So you're used to having the reins of decision making in your hands. How tough is it? to then be in situations, perhaps at home, where you don't get to make the decisions, where you're not necessarily the final authority. How do you turn that switch on and off? That's a, that's a million dollar question right there. Uh, wow. It is challenging. I, th I think uh, a good dose of humility and self-awareness and knowing your role in the team at home, um, my wife 
is, is a really, really strong leader. And she definitely sets the tone for our schedule and a lot of the ways that we parent our kids. I'm not an absent father. I'm, I'm definitely involved, but she's highly active. She's an eight on the Enneagram and a D on the desk profile. So she is somebody that is not afraid to step up and lead. And um, when you go from, you know, making the calls at work to going home and sometimes you're not always <laughs> being hurt. But I think, I think I've always, you know, my mom instilled this in me at a really early age is just being able to be humble, take a step back and kind of figure out where you fit on the team. When I played at Purdue, I was probably the worst player of the starting 11 guys. Uh, the 10, guy, uh, 10 other guys that played on the Rose Bowl on offense all went to the NFL. I was the only guy that didn't. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being a uh, support role at times. And so I think I know how to wear, I think, different hats. I know that my strength isn't necessarily like figuring out the meal plan or doing the online schooling with our kids. And so when you kind of play to each other's strengths and step in when maybe it, it needs to be a little bit more about know, emotional intelligence and being patient or helping the kids out with sports or just finding your role on the team, I've been able to do that. So it's a challenge sometimes because, you know, you're used to saying something and people will do it. And then you, you're the one doing what somebody else is saying, but um, I've been able to figure out, you know, just, I love being a role player too. You know, I, I love not being the guy. I love being kind of a support player. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Probably should mention a couple of Purdue connections before we go to the final five questions, and that is Jim Dora Sr., who you may have known. Uh, his uh, Son, Jim Dore Jr. is one of the sponsors. That's the Crown Plaza Hotel. Jim Dore Jr. actually hired me for my first job out of the military in March of 1990. And he's probably the best guy I've ever met who wasn't already 90 when I met him, meaning P.E. McAllister. And uh, Alex McAllister, P.E.'s grandson, who is works at the company is a Purdue grad as well. So if you don't know Alex, let me know. I'd love to introduce the two of you. He is a terrific, terrific guy. I'd love to meet Alex. No, I don't know him, but I obviously know Jim lives a couple doors down and uh, often see him on his John Deere tractor and chopping wood and cutting fire. <laughs> He's getting after it. We end all leaders and legends podcasts with the same five questions. Seth, are you ready? Yeah. Seth Morales, what was your first job? First job. My first job was working at the Fort Harrison golf course as a cart caddy or caddy. Um, I was a junior in high school and that was really where I was employed. I had a paycheck and I was actually getting tips. And so I was cut my teeth at the uh, Fort Harrison golf club. How many times have you watched Caddyshack? How many times? I'd say probably 10 times. <laughs> Number two, what was your first concert? Ooh, man, that's good. Uh, Beastie Boys, uh, mid-90s, Deer Creek, probably 1995. A um, little bit of that, like, New York hip-hop. Um, that, was, that was pretty cool. They... They, uh, they had a great show. So Beastie Boys, 95 Deer Creek. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Man, I've got a few right here, but if uh, I had to choose right now, um, man, I like this one a lot. I, I do this one a lot. I, I share this with a lot of um, up-and-coming um, college grads and just young professionals, but I love Never You Alone. It's written by Keith Ferrazzi and it's the art of networking and building relationships. 
I think it's one of the best practical, tactical guides to how you, you build a network the right way. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Well, I'm a sports guy. So having a chance to see, um, I think going to a national championship football game, going to a game where it had such an impact on me at a young age. Um, I don't, I don't have a specific game in mind, but if I could go to a tight, tight, close game, national championship, this would probably be mid nineties. Trying to think of who, who came out in, in the mid nineties, maybe it was Nebraska, maybe it's Miami or Florida yeah. State. That would be a, that would be kind of an ideal moment for me. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Two hours off the record, man, these are good questions, man. That's tough. Benefit of an IPS education. You know, if I could go back, you know, if he was still alive, think about Billy Graham. I think that would be pretty cool to see about, you know, just how he used his God-given ability to, you know, impact others, his oratory skills, just asking him about the stories. I think that'd be interesting. Um, Living today. Oh, man, my bad. That's all right. Living today. Man, I'd, I'd, I'd call Drew back up. I'd have two hours with Drew. I, I'd totally do that. That would that would be fun to see what he's done. Ask him some kind of inside the locker room questions. So that would be so. Drew Brees would be my answer. One thing that has become clear as we've talked to our leaders and our legends is how important it is for generation to both feed from and build upon the generations that came before them, whether that's Richard Luger leading Jim Morris and Mark Miles, Mitch Daniels, Teresa Lubbers, the list goes on and on. We've been fortunate enough to talk to some younger, younger folks who are making their mark. Ryan Vaughn specifically is someone who stands out along with Dave Neff, Maggie Lewis, but Seth Morales is right there. And don't take my word for it. If you can figure out a way to meet someone who knows Seth, it won't take long for them to explain to you the impact he's having and how important it is to have people like Seth Morales, his wife, Jackie, and his kids and his entire family and their legacy active in our community. We can't thank you enough, Seth, for coming on the podcast. Thank you and um, I will make sure to introduce you to Alex McAllister. And if you need anything from Veteran Strategies or me or any way we can be helpful, please let me know. We absolutely cannot get out of the current turmoil without leadership from people like you. Awesome. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.